Last night, I um, just got back from uh, the West Bank and was able to meet with a lot of different people there, Palestinian Christians, different Palestinian officials, Israeli officials and rabbis, U.S. consulate, U.N. officials, all kinds of things, and, uh, and, and just saw some reasons for despair, but also saw some reasons for hope, particularly in the Palestinian Christian and the Palestinian church. And I will share all of that with you in weeks to come. But one of the things I was real clear to me while I was there was how difficult reconciliation is, but how holy it is when it happens, and how of God it is when it happens. Which is why I'm glad that we have a guest preacher, not just because I'm jet-lagged and can't put five sentences together, but because Dr. Brenda Salter McNeil teaches reconciliation at SPU, and she is the person who I most trust on this issue. And she's going to be preaching here as well as leading us afterwards at 1230 in a conversation about race and reconciliation at 1230. Encourage you to stick around for that. Dr. Brenda is about the smartest person I've ever met. Uh, she is also one of the warmest, friendliest people you're ever going to meet. And she is a really good preacher. Um, and in fact, I teach a preaching course at SPU from time to time, and I usually show one of Dr. Brenda's sermons, and I'll say to the students, when you hear her preach, you're never going to want to preach again. She's that good. When I hear her preach, I never want to preach again. She's that good. When you hear her preach, you're never going to want to hear me preach again. She's that good. Would you please give a warm bell press welcome to Dr. Brenda Salter-McNeil. And you're supposed to preach after that, right? So I got to be good. <laughs> I want to worship for a second. Would you, um, I believe this about church, and it's sincere. I say it almost everywhere I go. I don't believe it's a spectator sport. I think we've got to have a stage so that you guys can see people who lead you. But it's never supposed to be this thing where you pay attention here. It's supposed to be this dynamic exchange of the people of God together. That's why in the Old Testament, the psalmist said, oh, magnify the the Lord. Anybody know that scripture? <laughs> really? Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let's exalt his name together. We'll practice that one. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let's exalt his name. <clears throat> one more time for Jesus. Oh, magnify the Lord and let's exalt his name together. Amen. That's church. Church is the people of God coming to be on mission to do the purpose of God. And we come and we all bring our A game. So it's not about how good I am. It's about how good we are. Amen. Amen. This is my prayer this morning. I love you, Lord. And if it's your prayer, make it your prayer with me. And I lift my voice to Bye. 
And so, Lord God, that is our prayer. We love you, and we want to please you. We want what you hear in our conversations, in this moment of preaching, in our inner life, the thoughts we think, what we speak about when we leave here in the parking lot. We want it to be sweet. We want you to be pleased. We want you, Lord God, to get glory out of our lives. So I pray for this moment of preaching that you would cause the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts to be pleasing in your sight. Oh, Lord, our strength and our redeemer, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. And we ask it now in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Well, I happen to be on the board of a missions organization called Wycliffe Bible Translators. Anybody ever heard of it? It's a missions organization that um, has the commitment to fill the, word, the world with the Word of God and to translate the Bible into the heart language of every language group that's on the face of the earth. And our hope is to be done with that completely by 2025. And it's been an honor to be on that, on that board. I tell you that because uh, I was uh, surprised by a little old white lady who asked me a question that I just didn't see coming at our last board meeting. I was uh, in the break room gathering some snacks, and she said to me, Dr. Brenda, you went to Ferguson, Missouri, didn't you? And I said, yeah, I did. And she said, I'd love to hear what you learned about the church from your visit to Ferguson. I thought, you do? It just caught me off guard. And so it put me on this process of thinking about what did I learn? So let me tell you that I went on a trip with other faith leaders from around the country. We were all invited to come because of the social uh, movement that was burgeoning out of Ferguson, Missouri. The church wanted to understand how are we to interpret this? How do we respond to this? How do we for ourselves figure out what's going on and not just by the news media and what we're hearing on TV? So we all went together from various denominations, various faith perspectives, uh, uh, seminary leaders, pastors of churches, clergy from various denominations, and it was pretty special. And I'm telling you, we went kind of all reverend doctored up, you know? We had our little clergy collars on, and we looked all official, but I'm here to tell you that the young people that we met in Ferguson, and we did, we met, uh, before I tell you about them, uh, we met with police chiefs and all kinds of people. It was real official. But on the second day, we met with young activists, and they were not impressed with our clergy collars or our Reverend Dr. Titles. Just didn't seem to make any difference to them. And so, and they shot straight with us. They told us how they really felt. And so that night I realized as I pondered on what did I learn about the church, that night changed my life because they just, they just let it go. They said, we really don't like the church, and we really don't trust you, faith leaders. And they went on to talk about why they had such a sense of dis, disrespect, dis, dis, uh, dissonance with us, a sense of uh, uh, detachment from the church. And they said, you know, we don't have PhDs. One guy said, we don't have PhDs in racial harmony. We didn't go start a movement. We don't know why this one seemed to, to catch such national energy unlike the other situations situations that have happened and the incidents of racial violence that have happened around the country and other places. We don't know why here and not there. All we know is that this has dropped into our laps and we're trying to play the cards that were dealt to us. So we listened and they said, but we don't really like the church. This is our civil rights movement, but it's not like your civil rights movement because what they really said to us is you left your work undone. Ouch. 
And then they went on to say things like, we don't really like the way the church uh, has, it has such, so much hypocrisy, ouch, or misogyny, ouch. And they kept going. Sexism, exclusion of the LGBT community. They just went on and on and on. They just really had a laundry list of what they didn't like about us. And we just sat there with our little clergy collars and just tried our best to absorb their critique. And then I realized that they uh, really had some valid concerns. And unlike what I'd heard in the news media about these being just rebel rousers in the streets, I met college students from Wash U. I met one young lady who had been to meet with the president. I met two people who had gone to Lausanne to testify in front of uh, um, a, a world congress around global issues. I met one young lady who worked for Teach for America. I met really thoughtful young people who had really valid critique of the church and who really hungered for social change. And so as I left that meeting and all of us, we were convinced that we had to bridge the gap between the church and these young people, this generation of young people who don't believe in the church anymore. And just in case we think that this is just young folks in, a, in an urban community like Ferguson, I'm here to tell you this has become a national problem, that young people who want to be engaged socially and globally in the issues that are complex and dealing with their day, they feel like we're kind of missing in action. That's how they perceive the church. And so I thought about that and I, I said, I think they just actually might be right. And I and other clergymen people gathered and we said, you know, this is our opportunity. This just might be a chance for the church to repent for the ways we've not shown up for this generation of young people who see us as lacking, in, uh, lacking innovation and being cri critically inactive. And so we started thinking, what then must we do? And that's when I stumbled on the scripture from Matthew about uh, uh, Mark about new wineskins. For some time now, God's been speaking to me about this need for new wineskins. But when I thought about what happened that night in Ferguson with those young people, and I thought about the word of God, I thought that's what Jesus is talking about. You see, in every generation, there's a seismic cultural shift that wakes us up, yea, the people of God, to the reality that we can't keep doing business as usual. Amen. Amen. Now, if you want to say amen any place during here, you could actually do that. It would not bother me. Actually, we've already talked about magnifying the Lord together, and so your part could be to bear witness to the Word of God. Amen? You could actually say when you hear the truth and agree with it, yes, yes, your neighbor might not even recognize you if you actually spoke out loud and said, I think that's right. Take a risk, amen, and say amen to something you believe in. I digress. I'm back. So, <laughs> I wish I had time to really preach today, <laughs> but I'm going to have to make this short. But man, if we had some time, we'd get somewhere. I can feel it. Here we go. I do believe that God does things in every generation. And their wake-up calls, that new wine is being poured out into this generation. And so for some of us, we see these experiences like Black Lives Matter, and it scares us to death. And we say, catastrophe, catastrophe. And others of us look at that situation, and yes, it makes us feel uncomfortable, but we say, catalytic event catalytic event. Maybe, just maybe, this is not the catastrophe we think, but a catalytic wake-up call from God to the church. 
Amen. Maybe this is our chance to get in the game. You see, I think that's what Jesus was talking about when he said that you can't pour new wine into old, you can't pour new wine into old wineskins. You've got to have new structures, new models, new ways of thinking, new paradigms, new approaches. Amen. New wine demands new wineskins. And so when John's disciples came to Jesus and said, why don't your disciples do all the old stuff that we used to do? You know, ritualistic fasting and cleansing and all the stuff that we've been doing all this time. It's like, it's our tradition. Why won't they do what everybody else is doing? And Jesus is saying to them and to us, it's not bad. It's just not going to fix or address the issues that are current. It's not that they didn't work for then, but they will not work for now. So don't expect my people to patch up prolonged, old, worn-out systems. They, they, they need to be discarded. They need to be updated. Innovation needs to come in. God says new wine will demand new wineskins, and so we're going to have to be creative. Amen. We're going to have to energize ourselves and follow the work of the Holy Spirit, the Creator God, who gives us new methods, new models, new ways of interpreting and responding to the world around us. That's what the church does. Amen. We don't come to be entertained. We come to be on mission. We come to be mobilized to be the people of God, pursuing the kingdom of God. And God says, if you want to do that, new wine will demand that you begin to develop new wine skins. That's what I began hearing when I was there. And that's exactly what's happening to Peter in Acts chapter 10. He thought he had God on lockdown. He thought he knew everything about God. He thought he understood how God rolls. He thought he understood how God does things. But one day in prayer, I feel like preaching. One day in prayer, he goes up on the roof for noonday prayer and he's up there praying maybe looking at the heavens above and contemplating the splendor and the majesty and the vastness of God, but also having a purview of everyone on the streets below as he stood on the rooftop and began pleading for the city that he loved and the people that he loved, praying to God for the people that God loves. And while he was praying and lunch was being prepared for him, says the text in Acts chapter 10, he falls into a deep sleep. Happens to the best of us, amen? <laughs> Prayer time can be strenuous. <laughs> and so while he is in this deep, deep, deep trance-like sleep, he has a vision from God. And the vision repulses him. He sees a sheet let down from heaven with all kinds of wild and domesticated animals on it. And the vision, there's a voice that says, rise, Peter, slay, and eat. And it absolutely turns his stomach. It makes him nauseous. He can't even imagine eating such profane, defiled food. He knows that this goes against everything he's ever been taught about what's right and wrong. Jewish law forbid him to eat clean foods or meat that was unclean. But I'm here to tell you that these dietary laws were more than just uh, a way of eating. These laws and these customs, those wineskins told him who he was. The way he ate kosher was what made Jews Jews 
and help them to know what makes us different from them. You see, these foods that we eat and these customs that we maintain, that helps us to know that we're God's people and God likes us. And see, we eat this way and we associate with each other who eat this way and that's why we don't hang out with them because all of these things give us a sense of identity. Who would we be if we violated these things and started doing things unlike we've done all this time? We can't do that, God. I will not eat, no way, because who would I be? How would I understand myself? How would I understand you if I broke these laws that I've been taught all my life? He was absolutely indignant and God says to him, don't call anything or anyone unclean that I have purified. This is about to flip the script for him. He doesn't know what to do with that. What do you mean, God? I was told not to do this. You can't mean that that's changing. I know a youth pastor. He happens to be white. And he led a young African-American guy to Christ. And he had one of those same experiences where everything he thought he knew got turned upside down. He was wrestling with this young African-American teenage guy that he led to Christ. They were rough housing, and he got him in a headlock. When he got him in a headlock, he was like, I finally can hold this guy down because this guy was a big guy. But somehow he flipped his body over, and he got out of the headlock. But when he did, the youth pastor let out a scream, threw his hands in the air, called his name out loud, and he said, Bo! And this young African-American teenage guy thought, I broke his arm. He thought, what happened? Are you okay? Coach, I hurt you. And then he said, the young white youth pastor, he said, Bo, your hair is soft. <laughs> and Bo said, yeah. And then he said, do you know what I've been told all my life? about black people's hair. I was told that all black people's hair was like steel wool, like, like a Brillo pad, but your hair is soft. For him that day, he had to question everything he was ever told in church by his people by his mama and his daddy and them, everything he thought he knew about racial and ethnic differences had to come under question. Because if that wasn't true, what else was it? We talk in the black church, what else was it? What else wasn't true? And now like Peter, everything is getting turned upside down. Because if they didn't tell me the truth about that, what else didn't they tell me the truth about? And he found himself taking the journey to racial healing and reconciliation, just like Peter. So when there was a knock on the door for Peter from Gentile guys who were sent by a man named Cornelius, who also had a vision from God, who told him to send for a man named Peter, who he probably would have never sent 
before under any circumstances because as a Gentile, he was told that I don't hang out with Jews. But God has a way of stepping into human existence, praise God, and moving us all toward the journey of reconciliation. God knows that we need each other and we will not be the people of God unless we come together to do it. And so God is the unseen power behind the journey toward reconciliation. I'm here to tell you reconciliation is not our idea. It didn't start with me or anybody else. Reconciliation starts with God. God is the person who mobilizes us toward reconciliation. And so Cornelius sends three people to Joppa to go get Peter, and Peter accepts the invitation because he too has had a vision from God that said, when they come, go with them. So he gets over there, but he's wigged out. So he takes six people with him as witnesses, right? He doesn't really want to go because that's called the Samaritan factor. Let me explain it. Samaria, as you've probably heard in scripture, is the place that no Jew goes. So it's the kind of place where you know stuff about those people. You read things about them in the newspaper, but you really don't know them really well. And you've never been in anybody's house. And so Peter kind of knows that these Samaritan Gentile people are over there, and he doesn't hate them, but he doesn't really know them either. And now he goes over to Cornelius' house, and maybe he's thinking two, three people, the wife, a couple kids. He gets in there, and Cornelius has called a crowd of people, everybody he knows. He's like, we're going to have a preacher coming here. Everybody, welcome. So when Peter gets into this house, they're standing room only, and it absolutely gives him the heebie-jeebies. He is smelling smells he never smelt before, the sister's cooking ribs in the kitchen. <laughs> He's like, oh, Lord, oh, Lord. <laughs> Things are scaring him. So he, just, he starts his sermon, you know I should not be here with you. That's his beginning of his ethnocentric sermon. I, I just want you to know I shouldn't be here. So why did you send for me? And that's when Cornelius tells him God's behind all of this. God told me to send for you. So Peter kind of goes, okay, God told me to stop calling people polluted that I have purified. So, okay, I'm going to give you this sermon. And my guess is that it wasn't the best sermon in the whole wide world. <laughs> but God uses ordinary, broken, scared people just like Peter and just like us. Even when we're half-hearted and we give it a sort of so-so try, God comes into that and brings God's presence to that and God's power comes on that and God uses our feeble efforts to do something powerful. The Holy Ghost falls on everybody in the house and Peter is absolutely astounded and that's when he says what we heard in our text, I now realize, oh my, what I didn't get was that God doesn't just like us, God likes them too. God doesn't just want to bless us, God wants to bless them too. God doesn't show favoritism. God wants to bless everybody. That was a good place for amen. <laughs> That's the message of the gospel, that from the very beginning, God wanted all the families of the earth to be blessed. And that's why, like Peter, we have got to care about issues that impact everybody, not just us. That's why Paris breaks our heart and Syrian refugees make us wonder what can we do. And that's why immigration reform is necessary. That's why we care about Black Lives Matter because God does not show 
favoritism. God wants to bless everybody, no exceptions. So on the last day of our time in Ferguson, we were now convinced that we should do something. So we did what Christians do. We had a committee meeting, amen. <laughs> we committed that thing and we had the flip charts out and we were writing all that we learned and we were doing what we we're good at, amen. We were thinking about it. <laughs> And a young African-American guy who happened to be in our uh, delegation looked to me like he'd gotten physically sick. What actually happened was he received a text about a decision in New York City, national decision, that uh, was the decision by the grand jury not to indict the police officers who had administered a chokehold on a man named Eric Garner. You probably heard this in the news. He said, I can't breathe 11 times, but the, the chokehold wasn't released. He died, but the decision was not to indict. And for this young man, it broke his, broke his heart. Literally, he had to t be taken out of the room. We saw it. We didn't know what had happened because we didn't realize he'd gotten this text. But when he got out in the hallway, he wailed in such a way that was overwhelming. We all went out in the hallway. You had to stop the meeting. We go out in the hallway. He is broken. He is weeping. We begin to weep when we understand what happens. We're now praying. We're trying to lament. And we get another text. We get a text from the young people we met with the night before. And they said to us, we will be going to the steps of the federal court building at 4 p.m. Are you coming or not? Wow. They were basically saying, last night you said how much the church cares. Last night with your little clergy collars on, you talked about how you really want to do something and how you really want to see the church be involved. Well, here's the big question now. We're going, are you coming or not? And my brothers and my sisters, the real question is, what were they asking us? Were they just asking, will you show up? I think it was deeper than that. I think they were asking an incarnational question. They were saying, will you come and will you fight with us and will you fight for us with no benefit to yourself. You don't get to write the book on it. You don't get to pastor it. You don't get to lead it. You don't write the grant for it. Will you come and follow us? Will you stand with us? Will you fight with us and for us with no benefit to yourself? Are you coming or not? And is that not what Jesus Christ did for us? Jesus came, moved into the neighborhood. Jesus came for the joy set before him. He endured the suffering, the shame, and the pain so we could be the church. Are you coming or not? We all knew that we were being called on the carpet in that moment. And so we went. I wish I had time to tell you what happened there. I saw young people who watched me weep and cry. I saw clergy people, Shane Claiborne and others, carrying their roller bag through the middle of a protest. No justice, no peace, holding a, a suitcase. I met a woman who saw me weeping and she kissed my hand and she said, young little thing with a red cap on her head, she said, from Palestine to Ferguson, a Palestinian young woman was in the crowd because she identified with the young people's cry in the United States. And as a Palestinian Christian, something about that had ignited her. This is global, and the whole world is watching. And so Bellevue Presbyterian Church, I, say, I think the same question that Cornelius asked Peter, that the Ferguson young people asked us, is the same question being asked of us here today. 
And it's simply but profoundly this. Are you coming or not? Let's pray. Lord God, my prayer is that our answer will be an unequivocal yes. Even though we're scared to death, some of us have baggage and we'll have to drag it through the middle of the street as we try to show up. But God, there's a generation who doesn't trust us anymore, who doesn't believe that the church is relevant. I pray for Bellevue's new wineskins. I pray, Lord God, that for some of us it will mean physically getting involved. For others, we will pray and get involved. For others, Lord God, we will support missions and organizations that get involved. But Lord God, you are the God of justice. And we pray that your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven, that as a result of the people of God on mission doing the will of God, people who no longer believe you're relevant will see the God of the kingdom, the God who causes the lamb to lie down with the lion, the God who causes people from every tribe and every nation to call each other family. Come, Holy Spirit, wake up the church, for we ask you to do it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said.